Nigerians Department of State Services, known as DSS for short, arrested Omo Nyele Shawari last year. Although Shawari was recently released, the charges as well as the way state security handled the arrest have drawn criticism from civil society within Nigeria and among some in the international activist community. Although Shawari is known for his activism dating back to his time at the University of Lagos, he is more recently recognized as the founder of Sahara Reporters, an online news outlet, and his candidacy for president in last year's general election. Today's host, Jalili Adebiyi and Peter Pena have a conversation with Ola Jimiji Ayamwale about the arrest of Shawari and diasporan activism more broadly. Jimiji is a personal friend of Shawari and a contributor to Sahara Reporters, including being on the production team for the widely popular online program called Dr. Damages. This is Leaders' Voices from Leaders of Africa, a podcast where we discuss African leadership from the perspective of thought leaders shaping politics, economics, education, and on this episode, diasporan activism. It exposes their ills and it tries to make people hold them accountable for all their actions. So that's the style that Chihuahua Miley adopted in terms of his news media effect. How effective are efforts by diasporan activists? Hi, my name is Peter, and I am joined by Jalili. And our guest today, Demiji Ayanwale, joins us from New York in the United States to speak about activism in the diaspora. Demiji, welcome. You are known to be an activist. Tell us what sparked your interest in activism. I've been involved in activism since the days of my college. My college did back in the University of Lagos. I was the welfare sec of my hall, my Kamabida Hall, and I was also one of the leaders from my department. I actually studied computer science in the University of Lagos. My involvement with politics, uh, with activism, started back in college, like I mentioned earlier. My first involvement with Shore Moyele, which is one of my mentors and one of my leaders, is in 1998 when, it, you know, it was a, a game in the University of Lagos, a Sunoga game, the first time they were opening up the stadium. And he came down there to kind of protest against the injustice that had been meted to one of uh, a student that was rusticated at the University of Ife. His name is Tony Fash. And he was challenging the military government at that time that this guy has to be reinstated because the school will be sponsored by the federal government to rusticate this very active and very vocal and articulate uh, student union in Nigeria, in Ife at that time. So, And that was what spurred my interest in terms of activism, in terms of fighting for justice, equality, and peace in Nigeria. So regarding the issue of Anthony Fashayo, popularly known as uh, Tony Fash, could, could you please tell us more about uh, how your excitement about Shure's interventions regarding Tony Fash really spurred you from activism in Nigeria through diaspora activism? Tony Fash, I, I'm not very close to him. Or maybe, do I know him one-on-one uh, -on -one, um, in personal terms? But I've heard of him in terms of what he has done and in getting involved with social justice and campuses across Nigeria. So Tony Fashayo, from what I know him from, from distance, is a final year a medical student at the University of the Great Ife at that time. And he was protesting on campus for the some of the welfare on campus. And for that purpose, the school rusticated him for one reason or the other. They find some, you know, some things on him and said, okay, it was going to be rusticated. 
on that note, he was rescued for, I think it was about two years. They didn't reach in state team. And it, it keeps going on and on and on until Shorea Omoyele in 1998, when New Aga Games was about to be commended. One of the vice presidents at that time came for the inauguration of Nuga Games and Shore Omoyele stepped in into that podium and said, we have been deprived, we have been oppressed by the attitude and the actions of University of Lagos uh, authorities in terms of rusticating Tony Fashayo. And he took away the microphone from then. And from that, I was like, who is this old guy that stepped up to the podium and to challenge the military administration in asking them questions that they need to answer? And that was what called me to, okay, you know, I'm interested in fighting for justice. If this guy is not in IFE, is a University of Lagos, Lagos student uh, activist, and he's fighting with somebody that is far remote from him, that is also a student from another university, that means he's fighting for something that is just, something that is correct, something that is right. So that was what pulled me into that. From that on, my second relationship, my interaction with Fourier, the second time was, was in New York at the friend's wedding in 2002. I did about, I was a very close friend's wedding. So he came down there, we sat down, and I told him about my experience with him in terms of the first time I met him and the first time we spoke. And that was where we reignited our friendship, our relationship. And since that on, we've been keeping in contact and we've been talking about how we can move Nigeria forward. From then, we engaged in several protests in, in New York and in New Jersey and everywhere we could lay our hands in terms of advocating for good governance in Nigeria. Whenever any government official comes to New York or comes to anywhere in the United States, we try to get there and try to make our voices heard. So, I mean, I mean since that time, we've been very close friends. So you mentioned activism in New York and New Jersey, for example, and, and as our listeners may know, you're based in the United States at this time. So I'm curious to know how activism looks differently in the diaspora versus activism that you hear about, that you talk about, that you're discussing that is happening on the ground in Nigeria. As you know, United States is home of civil rights activists. It's a place whereby there's freedom of expression, there's freedom of association. It's not like Nigeria, whereby you are being oppressed and suppressed in terms of your voices to be heard. So one of the few protests or activism that we get involved with, in, there's Nigerian Independence Day that usually occur every year around October 1st, in and out October 1st. Some of the government officials in Nigeria, they come around, they come to the parade, because there's a big parade that's been organized by the Nigerian consulates in New York City. So they all come there to kind of, you know, grace the occasion. We and myself and Chihuahua and some other guys, some other activists will come out in numbers to speak to their incompetence, their maladministration, and their misgovernance in Nigeria. We try to make sure that our voices are heard, that they should go back home and fix the country and let the country have peace, the needed infrastructure, the equal opportunity that they can create, the enabling environment for businesses and businesses to thrive, for everyone to have equal opportunity to be able to achieve and attain their heights. We are here, we are in the United States because we came here for greener pastors for economic opportunities, which is not available to us in Nigeria. So if we have the same enabling environment in Nigeria, we will not be here, living here and trying to find a greener pastor here. So that's what we try to push to all these leaders that comes around during the parade to spend their money and people start running around them to look if they can get one or two contracts. That's what we try to do. We try to stop them in terms of propagating their, their shenanigans. And also we staged several other protests, you know, in terms of the cheaper girls, in terms of the full price hike, 
that during the Jonathan era that they, they hiked the fuel prices and we actually protested. And also we have one famous protest program that we had in 2012 when the minister came to the United States to explain the reason why they want to increase the fuel price. We went to the hall where they were organizing this town hall to shut it down. It was led by Omar Elishore. I was part of the activists, the group that went to disrupt the occasion in terms of asking them that they should go back home and explain to their people because many people in the United States are not the ones suffering from the effect of the fuel price hike. So they should go back to Nigeria and explain to their people why they needed to increase the fuel price rather than come to the United States and spend all the monies and, you know, live large and uh, pretend that they are fixing the country for us. So many more of that protests that we've been doing, so which are very effective and up until now. And that's what actually us poured into creating a movement called Take It Back Movement. Thank you so much, Olatibeji, uh, for explaining a lot to us about the, you know, your involvement in diaspora activism. So the next question to you is this, how much impact of your diasporic activism have uh, had, you know, in galvanizing the Nigerian diaspora communities in the United States towards affecting uh, the much needed desired change that we are pushing for over there in the country? I can tell we have had a lot of impact. Up until now, I, I can guarantee you that majority of Nigerians that leave the shores of Nigeria that come to the United States, they came here for greener parts and they've already forgotten about Nigeria. They want to forget about Nigeria because they felt like it's not a livable place. It's not a conducive environment for them to have their aspirations and their desire to the world, their wishes. So they leave Nigeria and, you know, totally forget about Nigeria. But in terms of what Shure was trying to do and what the group is trying to do, is trying to reorientate, to create the awareness in terms of Nigerian can be better, Nigerian can be good. So far, the leaders can fix some of the few things that we needed to provide enabling environment for us. A lot of people in diaspora have not turned back that. Nobody, no outsider will fix Nigeria for us. It is only Nigerians that can fix Nigeria. If you leave it to outside, it will never be fixed. So it is Nigerians, especially the ones that are outside Nigerian, that can, in Nigeria, there's hunger, there's pervasive hunger that is palpable in the air. That you can see there's hunger, there's poverty. You cannot talk sense into an hungry man. An hungry man, they say, is an angry man. You cannot talk sense into him unless you give him food first and you'll be able to converse and be able to talk to him that this what you're doing is wrong, this what you're doing is correct, is right. Let's fix this country, let's move this country forward, let's live in peace and harmony. So what the people in diaspora are doing, because they're already established in their various homes and various jobs, so they know they, they outside the box, they can think and think straight. Almost majority of them are the breadwinner in their family and they send money home to various people. In road that we're trying according to that is to try to tell them that People that you know that you can talk to, that you can, you know, you are feeding back home, you can talk to them, you can retain them, you can speak to their brains, you can bring to their senses, you can bring their self-consciousness back alive, give them a rude awakening and tell them that they don't have to sell their civic rights, their, their rights, they don't have to sell their vote. They should look carefully and look for the best in when anybody comes to them for any elective position, they should interrogate them. They should not take money from them. They should ask them critical questions. What are they going to do to bring about change in the country? They should ask questions. They should not say, okay, which is the, the leader said we should do this. The leader said we should do that. They should interrogate them. They should ask them questions. Despite the fact of their condition, despite the condition that they subjected them to, they should be able to ask questions and ask them critical questions that can change and transform the country. So, and the inroads that we've got into is that the reason why the government are so scared about 
what Shure and the team is bringing about is the awareness, the, the reorientation, the enlightenment that is bringing into the people to kind of lift themselves out of that mental block and be able to think for themselves and be able to ask this critical question. And for that purpose, we can see that the entrasm, the patriotism, the interest of many Nigerians, both home and abroad, has really turned up, has really gone up in terms of getting interested into who leads them, who controls them, who controls their affairs, and who controls their social environment. And that's what I think we've achieved so far in this campaign. So you often hear these criticisms about the role of the diaspora in playing a direct role in politics back home. So I'm wondering, should diasporan figures attempt to get involved in politics beyond some of the activism that you described? That is, for example, running for political office. I believe so. I believe so. Oh, this is what they say. There's a there's a wise saying that said, if the wise refuse to rule, they will suffer the rules of the idiots. He will keep leaving it to the mediocre in the in the political system, the charlatans in the political system. We can never get anywhere. First of all, the electionary process is flawed, and it can never bring about a good leadership or good governance in Nigeria. We need to fix that country. So what the diaspora is bringing about is the way politics or democracy is being run in uh, in a senior crime like America is being taken back to Nigeria and say, this is how to run the process. This is how to fix the process. I will give you an example. What should Moyele try to do, getting involved in politics? It's not a typical politician, not a career politician. What he tried to bring is about in terms of how he run his process. For example, for the funding process. If in Nigeria it used to be like a godfather sits down somewhere giving you money, and control it. And after you get to the position, it controls you, it tells you what to do. How you, you know, the contract, all the, the stuff you do when you're in office, it controls you. But for Oshure Omoyele, the way he said things should be run is it's not by someone sitting down there with a big bag of money and giving it to you to run for an elective position and he can control afterwards. He said, okay, you can go to what America does, the crowdfunding. Majority of the politicians in America do, do crowdfunding. Look at Bernie Sanders. He does crowdfunding. A lot of them, they do crowdfunding. So she already did crowdfunding to go good for me. A lot of Nigerians that believe in his process, in his ideology, in his principle, they contributed a lot of money. The total money that was returned during the campaign was a 158 million era. He did not pay anybody to vote for him. Rather that people were paying him. So that after when, if God makes it possible that he gets to the position to, to the presidency, he will be responsible to the people rather than the people responsible to him. Because if the politician give people money, they will control them. But if the people give the politician money to run for office, they will be able to control them. They will be able to ask them critical questions and they will be able to make them do whatever they wanted to achieve in that country in terms of fixing infrastructure, fixing the health system, the roads, the, the electricity. They will be able to ask critical questions. But when politicians go around and give you $500 to take your votes, 500 naira to take your votes, and, you know, that doesn't amount to anything after the very day that he gave you the money because he can't purchase anything. But just because you're taking a slice of the piece, they can control you. I mean, that's the reason why the people in diaspora should go back home and teach them how the process is being run and show them the way. Leadership is about perception. It's about leading. It's about showing them how things are done properly. And that's the reason why she really got involved in politics. Thank you so much, Ola Dimeji, for speaking anonymously about the involvement of Omoyele Shure, the founder of Sara Reporters, that prides itself as a citizen's reporter and his involvement in Nigerian politics. 
as a presidential candidate. If you may recollect Mr. Ola Dimeji, in the last election that was recently concluded, during which Omoyele Shore contested as a presidential candidate, what sense could you make of the performance of Omoyele Shore in that election? Because it appears that he didn't get up to 50,000 votes. Could that mean that there is a kind of a huge gap in terms of understanding of what the processes look like and the physical presence of Omoyele Shore electronically, you know, I mean, it's visibility fears our reporters. Could that mean that uh, the people who are from diaspora, who are participating in politics back in their various countries, they need to actually understand the politics of place to be able to do better. So what could actually explain this gap in terms of the huge presence electronically and the number of voters that somebody like Omoyelo Shore gathered when they contested for the presidential election? That's correct. The total vote that was recorded for Shore during the presidential election was about 33,000 votes. Yeah, that's not up to 50,000 votes. But I can tell you categorically that there was no fair and credible election in Nigeria, with no iota of doubt. There's a lot of voter suppression in Nigeria. I have several incidents that people come to me and tell me they were not allowed to vote. Even people in diaspora that have PVC, they went back home to vote. They were denied, they were depraved. In some areas, they would come with the gun and said, if you're not voting for APC here or PDP here, they will not allow you to vote. Some of my friends that actually went to some of the police station and, you know, they are popular people around the campaign as well. They went to their various units. They were not allowed to vote. And, you know, if it's two or three people here and there, I can even tell you again, one of our candidates during the presidential election is a senator. He was denied. His name was removed from the list. He was not allowed to participate in the election. So, I mean, when he complained to INEC, they said sorry that they didn't know that they should go and bring some documentation and the rest of the thing. And they tried to frustrate the process because they feel like you are mad to nothing. So there was a lot of voter suppression. That's number one. Number two is that until we change our electoral system into electronic voting, whereby a lot of people will be able to vote, there can be much of the change that we are desired. Number three is that in Nigeria, the political system that we're running is too complex, too cumbersome, and too centralized. We don't have independent electoral body, truly, truly independent electoral body. The electoral body still does the bidding of the ruling party in one way or the other, in one form or the other. There's no doubt about that. Even if they don't have a real discussion about which direction the INEC people should go, there's a virtual understanding that, oh, in places where it's clear and direct, you have to do the bidding of the ruling party. Otherwise, you know, you'll be staffing out of that position in no time. So there's a lot that is wrong about the electoral process, and you cannot accept the result as a true representation of the people. And more so, voter suppression, like I mentioned earlier, is that a lot of people feel like whether you vote or you did not vote, your vote does not count. And this can attest to what happened in Lagos during the presidential election. For the old 71 parties that participated in the presidential election, they can only muster about 1.2 million votes. The old political parties, not just APC and PDP, the old political party, they can only muster about 1.2 million votes, whereby when you go to the north, can all add about over 2 million votes coming from APC. So, and if you look at that, look at all those things, you see that process is too complex, too cumbersome to actually, you could break into it. The only way to move forward is to change the electoral system, to decentralize the federal government, to make the potential to be loose enough go to the region, maybe we can diverge into the region and try the regional rule because that's the only system that I've worked in Nigeria. Otherwise, 
Everybody is fixated on the central government, managing multiple of resources that is not supposed to be managed by just one single federal government. Until then, you know, we're going to be still running politics of do and die. You've raised a lot of issues and you've mentioned what people usually call supposedly a sinner climb. As I like to ask you this question, if you may recollect in the United States, it's supposedly seen crime. We have issues of voter suppression and also heard about issues of abuse of electoral processes, rigging, and you know, there have been a lot of allegations when we listen to the debate by the Republicans and the Democrats. And uh, we have also experienced the issue of over-monetization of the electoral process in the United States for you to contest for the presidency of the United States. You have to spend a monstrous amount of money and we've also been experiencing this in Africa, whereby you have to spend a lot of money to get into political offices. I mean, in both places, it involves spending a lot of money. And it appears that the culture of place in Africa generally is that people don't actually fund electoral processes. How do you intend to change this culture of place without being on ground? Does it require you guys to be on ground? To be able to change the process of place, is that one of the things that you think you guys need to do differently to engage the process differently in order to get different results? Like I mentioned earlier, you know, in Nigeria, uh, the electorate are not well informed about their rights. To actually start changing anything possible in Nigeria, we need to educate the electorate to be well informed about what decision they are making and they will make in the future. That is tantamount to determine their future. The electronic needs to be educated. That's number one. Number two is that the process, like I mentioned, is too complex. To make any inroads, we need to sensitize our people and need to demand from the current constitution and the elected officials. We need to ask their electorate, their voters, to go to the various constituencies to pressure them to change the system that will benefit all of us. Otherwise, we'll just be going around the circle and have any positive effect in the political process. So one of the more electronic means of activism that you've talked about already in our discussion is Sahara Reporters. So many people know what Sahara Reporters is, but why don't you tell us in your own words, what is Sahara Reporters? How does it work and how does it play this role in informing the broader populace? So Sahara Reporters is an online news media outfit that reports about government, anti-government activities and corruption in Nigeria and also all over Africa, or it's not actually central, but it's just the main story comes out of Nigeria, but it's meant to be for the whole of, it's a pan-African news media aspect. The traditional and the mainstream news media, they don't carry some of the controversial stories that comes out of the government uh, agencies and the, the federal government uh, area. They're scared of persecution and they're scared of any form of repression that can come back from the government. Sahara Reporter is an audacious news media aspect that does not care whose earth is good in terms of its style and the process whereby it reports its own stories. It carries some of the controversial stories that opens a lot of Nigerian eyes into what type of corruption is going on in the government in Nigeria. It empowers the ordinary people on the street to know and to demand for good governance and to hold their government accountable when they see something that is being done within the government confines that is not right, that is not acceptable as a country or as people. So it exposes their ills and it tries to make people hold them accountable for all their actions. 
So that's the style that Chihuahua Miley adopted in terms of its news media feed. And it's a non-profit organization whereby it's been sponsored by a lot of foundations like Ford Foundation, Omedia, and the rest of them. And it does a lot of uh, documentaries and rural reporting in terms of the poverty that is pervasive the land. It exposes all these ills and try to make sure that people are well informed about what's going on around them and what's going on in their country. So that's the style that Shore O'Malley adopted. Why, you know, looking at why establishing the reporters. And so, what really contributed in your mind to the success of some of those key programs? And what comes to mind is watching the segments from, for example, Doctor Damages or Keeping It Real, for example, some of these segments. So, what really contributed to the success? And the wide adoption and viewership of some of these personalities when it came to talking about issues in Nigeria. A lot of Nigerians are lazy sometimes. They don't have time to actually filter through the news media and read a lot of stuff. So what brought about the Keeping a Real Show and Dr. Damage is about satiric display of the news, of all the news in during the week and capturing into one clip and make sure that you can relax and watch it. While you're laughing about it, you're learning from it as well. You're being informed about what's going on. That's what brought about that. And keeping it real, Adiola, it's a comical display of real issues that's going on. And they try to also give accolade to people that, you know, struggling on themselves that to be successful and trying to promote themselves. And all these entrepreneurs that are out there that are struggling on their own to kind of make ends meet, that are creative and coming out to expose their skills into the world is showing them to the world to kind of see the talent in all of them. So, you know, it's a form of mixing comic with also satire to kind of display what is going on in Nigeria and then people be able to relax and see what is going on in Nigeria. And is there a reason why their programs haven't been on Sahara Reporters recently? I know Keeping It Real has moved in sort of its own project now, but uh, I haven't seen Dr. Damages in some time. So have they moved on their own separate ways? Where is it at right now? Actually, I'm part of the crew for Dr. Damages. I'm the Noisbeck on Dr. Damages. But unfortunately, due to what has been going on with the news media, Sahara Reporters, they've been running low on funds. And in lieu of that, the expenses were very enormous and they had to downsize and had to also concentrate in Nigeria because it's cheaper to run from Nigeria. So there's a lot of the activity has shifted to Nigeria. And whereby in New York, we have really downsized into like just having an office to run some of the few things that we need to run from the United States. So that's the reason why, you know, it funding, there was a funding issue that made the, the show to go off. We, you know, if we have some money, we might still bring it back. Although Dr. Damage is running off also on his own, it's recording some few things on his own, but it's not as much as, you know, when he used to be with uh, Sarah Potters. Question I would like to ask, uh, build on what Peter has been speaking about, you know, the issue of politics and diaspora activism. How do you see Sarah Reporter? Uh, relocation to Nigeria, you know, playing a very instrumental role towards taking uh, voters' education, public uh, civic sensitization to the next level. Do you guys have a plan regarding that, or you still want to stay with your concept of a uh, citizen's reporter? Things are improving. We are still with the concept of citizen's reporter, but what the Civic Media Lab was meant to be an open space for all these entrepreneurs, all these freelancers to come around and have access to resources that can enhance their reporting and it's an open space that people can come around you know free wi-fi you know arts parts be able to access because internet connection in nigeria is very expensive when you cannot afford it so it's a place whereby if you needed to have an internet connection you can go there 
you want to do your blogging process or you want to do your reporting on your own maybe your website you can go there it's a tool to kind of help a lot of upcoming freelancing journalists that is out there that want to start developing their own skills so it's open to them it's also involved itself with some of the social intervention around the country a lot of them you know in terms of sponsoring some students for their educational process from elementary school to their university some few university students we are giving them scholarship for their schools for their education so a lot of has been done you know but it's little that we can do without money funding is not coming as much as we expect due to funding low funding uh, we've been hampered and we've not been able to move the noodles as much as we wanted there's a lot of lawsuits that have been there one of them was with the Sarakis, which eventually we won we got our money back but it's still not enough we needed a lot of funding you're listening to jalili and peter's conversation with jimiji ayamwali in the second half they discuss the arrest of shawari and its implications for basic freedoms in the country So I want to talk about Shuori a little bit more and the current events that have been going on in the country. And as some of our listeners may be aware, Shuori has been in Nigeria since the elections that happened in February last year. Before the elections, he was in Nigeria, but he's been there after the elections. In recent months, it's been not on his own will in the sense that he was arrested by the Department of State Security, also known as DSS for short. They arrested him. And so I'm curious to hear your thoughts about his original arrest in Nigeria. What was the sense you got from at least from the DSS standpoint, from the government standpoint for that arrest? And do you see concerns with the allegations that they make against Shore? The allegation that they make against Shore fall flat on his face. Because if you look at all those three charges, the main three charges that count that they had against him, is the first kind is of terrorism felony. The third one is anti-money laundry. Fourth one is uh, cyber stalking, abusing of the president. And the actual reason why they said they wanted to detain him to interrogate him was because they said he called for a revolution, a forceful takeover of government. He built his own army. He has his own rebel that wanted to overthrow the government. That was the, the main charge that said he has the capacity to overthrow the government. First judge that was going to hear the case said they should hold him. They went to hold him based on the terrorism act that they can hold him for 45 days to investigate him. Because why is it done? They take you, they arrest you, and now they want to investigate the reason why they arrested you, they detained you. So it's not done anywhere in the world. Nigeria is a place that such a thing can happen. To cut the long story short, all the things that he you know, charged you for is going to fall flat on his face when he started the trial. The trial starting February 11th next month. So 11 through the 13, we're going to start the trial. But I can guarantee you that the trial will definitely fail because they've really not seen anything that corroborates everything that they've charged him for. It won't fly. So why did they go after Shori specifically? Because as we've been talking about in this conversation before, talking about the election results and how Shori managed to get just over 30,000 votes, he didn't seem so much like a direct threat in that sense to the government. So why has he become the focus of these concerns that you laid out? I think that's a very, very intelligent question that you asked me. You know, this is a man that is brewing an ideology. It's difficult to defeat. It's only a man that is building an army. You can defeat a person that defeats an army. But you cannot defeat anybody that is building an ideology with a gun. 
if you want to kill me with a gun because this next person has the same principles, same ideology, because the political class, they have suppressed a lot of Nigerians. They put them into abject poverty for so long that Shogura is trying to reawaken their consciousness to make them realize that their self-worth, that they are better than this. The government can do better than this if we hold them accountable. Because a lot of people, they're hungry. You know, Nigeria is the poverty capital of the world. And a lot of people are hungry. They don't have the sense of their own. They're only looking up to the politicians to give them some small money and get on with their lives. For them, for sure, coming around saying, no, you can ask questions. Because in Nigeria, they say, if you ask questions, they just kill you around. They, they, just, they, they, they can kill you. Shogure is insisting that that's not possible. That if you stand up for your rights, if you talk, you're going to die. If you don't talk, you're still going to die. So why just not talk? Talk and ask questions. Ask them critical questions for them to move the country forward rather than just propagate uh, all these uh, shenanigans around and say, okay, we're going to we fix the country. We're going to you know, take over everything we've said in the manifesto. We're going to implement them. But still, they have not done a single thing to make the lives of Nigerians better. So Shore is the person that's building that's harnessing of the ideology about saying Nigeria can be better if we hold our leaders accountable. And that's what they are scared. That's what they are scared about, that the ideology that is brewing, that is, is trying to preach to the people of Nigeria is what they are scared about. Since the release of Omoyele Shore, the founder of Sahara Reporters, we noticed that it's not been addressed in the media, it's not been speaking, it's gone dead silent. Could that be because of his bail condition or what exactly explains this? Some of the stringent build condition that they gave him is that they should not address the press, they should not address the media, they should not leave the confines of Abuja where he does not have a residence there. He has to come up with two shorties that are worth 50 million naira and have residences in Abuja. It's a very stringent condition. And the last one, the fourth one, I think I remember is that he cannot travel anywhere. He has to deposit his passport with the judge. He should not go anywhere other than staying in Abuja, and they are not going to provide him any accommodation. They picked him up from Lagos, but they said, yeah, he cannot leave Abuja. And, you know, I don't know how that corroborates in terms of what they needed to achieve with what they charged him for. The reason why he has not been outspoken or maybe coming out to speak, he's been out there in the social media addressing whatever issues that he needed to address. But in terms of coming out to the camera, speaking to the press, and granting interviews, it's a violation of the spirit condition. That's why he has not done that. When Omoyele Shure was arrested, there was a massive media outreach, but there was not a lot of support from the generality of the ordinary Nigerians. I mean, in terms of the Nigerian public, including the student populace, where Shure was more or less an iconic personality, you know, in the 90s and uh, thereabouts. So what possibly explains the fact that some of these important segments of the Nigerian society did not actually come out to express their displeasure for the arrest and the treatment of Shure by the Nigerian government and the DSS? First of all, there's this inferiority complex that exists between the people in diaspora and people that live back home. So when anybody comes from diaspora and said he wants to do something, they look at him, they see him as somebody that that does not merit that position, that, you know, we are here, we're suffering. Now you want to come from somewhere, you just want to take over. That complex is there. That's number one. Number two, the mental state of our people, like I always repeat to you, that the hunger, the poverty, 
the pervasive deploration of our people is affecting the way they think, the way they reason. So it's one of the process whereby they've been brainwashed by their political leaders that, okay, you know what, nobody can come outside and tell you all this. Don't listen to them. They are trying to take away your rights. Listen to us. We are the people that you voted for. We're going to do this, do that. And it's a perpetual thing that's been ongoing that they never fulfilled all their promises. In terms of why most people did not support you, I'll tell you, from the inferiority complex, even within the Nigerian diaspora, some of them did not support him because they felt like Chure is an activist. Why would he venture into politics? And even if he ventured into politics, shouldn't have protested. He doesn't have right to go back and protest. Whereby they have forgotten that all the few times that President Mohamed Buhari has contested for election and he lost, he protested. He protested to the extent that the former vice president at that time, Chuba Kadipo, died as a result of the tear gas that he killed during one of the protests that they, they conducted at that time. So, you know, a lot of Nigerians want to go into that trajectory, which I totally demand. It has a total right. A Nigerian citizen, a patriotic Nigerian, that has right of freedom of expression. He has a freedom of expression to express his views about the ongoings in Nigerian society and ongoing in Nigerian politics. He has the right. So there's nothing stops him from protesting. And revolution now is just a protest. It's just a word. It's a coined word. It's not a violent protest to say they want to take over the government. It's just a simple protest. He has been saying this since the day he was contesting for the presidential election. He has been using the word revolution. He said, the Nigerian government, the Buhari government should be running a revolutionary government, a change government, a government that is distinct, that is creative, that is visionary, that is audacious, that is ambitious about fixing the country. Things that they will do out of norm to kind of elevate the lives of Nigerians. So they are not doing that. So that's the reason why many people don't buy. And the last one I would like to make on this point is that they felt Shure is too disrespectful, that he's too arrogant, and he doesn't respect all the leaders. You know, it, traditionally, the people of the southwestern states are very accustomed with respect for the elders. That You have to respect the elders. Only if the elders are doing wrong, you cannot tell them, you cannot fault them. It's like your father, you can never be wrong. You cannot correct your father or your mother. They can never be wrong. And what Shure tells them in return is that, who has ever been respectful to all these political leaders that will be able to change things properly if they respect them. It's not about respect because respect is reciprocal. If you respect me, I'll respect you. So it's not about he being disrespectful to them or just saying the truth. That's his style and the way he wants to pass his own message. It's not being disrespectful. He just saying the truth. That's why he has a lot of followers organically. Organically. Even this current incident about his detention made him more popular than before, that people now see all the things that have been talking about that, okay, this man actually have a point in terms of how we can move this country forward. So does his arrest and what we've been talking about now say anything about the health of democracy, the health of basic civil liberties in the country? Should we take away something about the status of Nigeria in that respect? Yes. One thing I always I, I like to say is that Nigerian president is more powerful than the United States president. The Nigerian president can just wake up today and say he wants to remove the chief justice of the federation or maybe the speaker of the house or maybe the, the Senate president. He can will, if he so wish, he's going to be removed. But in the United States, the American president cannot wake up today and say he wants to remove Nazi police. No. Or maybe he wants to remove the vice president or he wants to remove anybody in elected position. No. 
But in Nigeria, if he said he doesn't want one governor in one state, if he actually use all this political will, the governor will be removed. So that's why I said the president of Nigeria, one of the most powerful presidents in the world. Nigerian democracy has a little bit matured, a little bit in the sense that now people are beginning to ask questions with the messages that this young force, not only Shore, a lot of young Nigerians that actually participated in the election, they came out to actually put out the message there that we should not always rely on these old politicians to direct us. It's enough is enough. One of the significant progress that we made was the not too young to rule bills before the age for contesting for governorship and president was like in the 40s, but nowadays reduced it. You can be 35 years and contest for Nigerian president before, it used to be 40 or 45, and also have some other elements that are attached to it that make it impossible to have a young president in Nigeria. And it's been championed by a lot of civil society organizations, the Enough is Enough, Consensus in Serap and the rest of them in Nigeria, you know, and Take Back and also all the movement that is in Nigeria. It's been not too young to rule bill. We've been championed by them. That aspect, like I can say that we've progressed, but all in, in generality, Nigeria is a, a complex and multi-ethnicity country whereby it is difficult to kind of actually make a real progress in our democratic process. The electoral process is too cumbersome and is not independent enough. We need to break it down. We need to make it more independent, whether whereby the head of the INEC should be nominated by the civil society, not the president. Likewise, the chief justice of Nigeria, likewise, so many other positions that's supposed to be truly, truly independent from the executive that are not truly independent. Our own democracy should be different from America. It's slightly different because we have a peculiar situation in our hands via the ethnical problem and the religious problem, but because that does not exist in the United States. But for us, so, and the institutions are very, very weak. We need to build the institution. The institution has to be very, very strong to support our democratic system. The center has to be broken. I keep repeating that the center is too powerful to be concentrated in one place. It has to be broken into various regions or maybe different states to have the power to control their own resources and many other things so that we can, they can move on. For example, looking at the electrical problem that we have now, the power problem that we have in Nigeria, as long as we have a single grill, a single central grill, we cannot have electricity in Nigeria. It has to be put into regional grilled that we can develop and provide electricity to a specific area so that when things break down, they'll be able to fix it quickly and you know probably to make it turn around in time. So in terms of our democratic process progressing, I don't think we can achieve more if we still continue with this current process unless we restructure, we address some of the issues that are pending in the constitution. The constitution has to be fixed, has to be rewritten, has to be amended, basically. All our leaders that are supposed to make the move, they are not making the move. All the states out of assembly, all the uh, representative uh, senators, they need to come together and agree on and change some of the few things that can move up the ladder, that can develop, that can make us develop faster and in systematically develop. So I think so far we have not really achieved anything with this democracy. Otherwise, we're still running back in circles. Dimeji, you spoke so much about folks in the diaspora knowing it's better and they want to go back home and teach people back home how better to, to do things, which I may have some reservations about. So my question to you, I want you to think a little bit in terms of what do you think folks who are engaged in diaspora activism with a few to effecting change in Nigeria needs to do differently in terms of their assumptions and in terms of how they engage the process. Any thought about what you think 
that uh, you folks need to do differently in order to get better results back home. I know what your reservation are. Post diaspora need to get more involved into social interventions because uh, that's what they need. A lot of Nigerians need uh, a lot of social interventions. So they need to do more of social intervention. For example, doctors that could donate a lot of drugs or medicine or maybe beds and the rest of the thing. Equipment, basically, you know, back home, there's a lot of medical needs in Nigeria because of our condition in Nigeria. Likewise, in terms of the brain drain in Nigeria. So a lot of diaspora, they can go back home. If you remember during the President Obasanjo's uh, era, some of the few brains in terms of the economic brains that he used from diaspora, they discover a lot of talents to bring them back home. And the diaspora people, they need to get more involved into social intervention. For example, giving things to universities, donating different books or materials or computers and getting more involved into academics. People that are smart, best graduating students and different schools should be helped, should be rewarded, assembly rewarded. Because a lot of them are lavishing on the streets of Nigeria with no jobs, with no real jobs, with no real opportunity to actually progress in life. So I think Nigerian diaspora need to get more involved into a lot of those activities to kind of help the system. Just on the last note, down, just to piggyback into why you have some reservation, people in diaspora, they cannot do things for them in Nigeria. It's just a motivation to motivate them to do things in the right way. You don't know a place better than people that live there. You can only motivate them to do things the right thing. I was just discussing with someone just as of two days ago. He said during his son's wedding, his auntie, his son's auntie came around in Australia. Her name is Mrs. Tupsi. And his son in Australia, it was spring morning unto the son. And his son said, auntie, stop, stop. In front of everybody, he said, auntie, stop. I don't want that. And he said, why? He said, because it's only a stripper that you throw money at. Like, oh, that's our culture that we throw money, you know. He's coming from a different background. He has never seen that in Nigeria before. But now someone is throwing money at him. He's saying he's a stripper. That, no, it's a different culture. It's a different understanding of how things are operating in a different environment. So Nigerian people in diaspora, diaspora people can only encourage and only motivate and only lead people in Nigeria to do the right things. That's what Chure is doing. Chure is really not interested in becoming the Nigerian president. If so be it, yes, he can be in Nigeria. He can run it. But... He wants to spark the brain that will develop, that will lead Nigeria in the right direction, the right way. Thank you, Demiji, for joining us today. We've been speaking with Demiji Ayanwale. Demiji is a personal friend of Omayele Shaware and a contributor to Sahara Reporters. The views expressed in this interview are the guests' own and do not necessarily reflect those of leaders of Africa and the leaders of Africa Institute. Do you have thoughts on diaspora activism? We want to hear from you. Share your comments and questions at yourvoice at leadersofafrica.org. To learn more about Leaders of Africa, visit our website, leadersofafrica.org, and follow us on social media. Before we go, we want to let you know that applications for the Leaders of Africa Institute Research Methods Program 2020 will open in February. And that's all for this episode of Leaders Voices from Leaders of Africa. Thank you for joining us. Until next time. Leaders.